artificial intelligence will completely transform our world. But what is AI? Why will it affect you? And how can you and your business survive and thrive through the AI revolution? Welcome to AI and You. Here is your host, author, speaker, and futurist, Peter Scott. Hi. In this episode, we'll conclude our two-part interview with Christoph Kovacs, the international supervisory psychologist of Mensa. Mensa is a worldwide society whose membership requires a score in the upper 2% of the population on an IQ test, and Christoph speaks for Mensa on the definition of intelligence. His job is to ensure that they're measuring the right thing in the right way. Christoph obtained an MA from the University of Szeged and a PhD from the University of Cambridge. Subsequently, he worked as a postdoctoral fellow at the Budapest University of Technology and Economics and the University of Amsterdam. His main interest is individual differences in cognitive abilities, bridging cognitive psychology and psychometrics. Currently, he is Senior Research Fellow at Ertvers Lorand University in Budapest. In this interview, you'll hear him mention something called the G-factor, which is a measure of general intelligence. Roughly speaking, it's what you get when you consider someone's various measurements of specific intelligence over as broad a range of domains or types of intelligence as possible. People who design IQ tests have sophisticated ways of putting those figures together. So why do we want to know about human intelligence? Well, we've spent all this time talking about artificial intelligence, and we know what artificial means, but what is intelligence? And it's very hard to know. Even in Christoph's field, there is no consensus definition of intelligence, and that's after a lot of very er, intelligent people have studied and thought about that question. There's no question that IQ tests are measuring something. And for general aptitude tests or deciding whether you get into Mensa, they might be good enough. But when we're trying to make a computer intelligent, we have to get very, very specific about what we mean when we say that. In the first half of this interview, we talked about different models of intelligence, from Gardner's eight intelligences, which include, for instance, musical intelligence and intrapersonal intelligence, to the CHC model Christoph described. That says that there's crystallized intelligence and fluid intelligence, which are subdivisions of the G-factor that I just mentioned. And the crystallized intelligence is the application of rules, whereas fluid intelligence is generalizing from other knowledge. Computers are very good at the crystallized kind of intelligence, but not at the fluid kind. And then there are several other cross-cutting categories in the CHC model, like visual processing and long-term storage and retrieval. Do a search for CHC intelligence and you can find more to read up on. Now, those may be useful definitions for breaking down human intelligence, but do they work for analyzing machine intelligence? I'm pretty simple-minded on these things, so the definition of artificial intelligence I've been using in my classes and talks is that it's a computer doing something which a person could do, but which they could not practically write down the steps for. Now, of course, a lot of what's called AI at the moment doesn't fit that definition, because a person could write down the steps for what's being done, 
But the reason I use that definition is that I want a clear distinction between AI and what computers have been doing for decades in applied statistics, business analytics, and predicate logic. What's sometimes called good old-fashioned AI, or GoFi. Because the line between that and a calculator on steroids is too blurry. So an example of what does fit that definition of AI is facial recognition. You can't write down the steps to describe how you recognize faces. No one can. You might think you can. Maybe you start out with some sort of decision tree, like female with jowls and crown equals Queen Victoria, crooked teeth plus wart on nose equals witch from Snow White, orange face plus comb over equals Donald Trump. But that's just not going to get you further than a handful of extreme cases. Pretty soon you're going to realize that you can't write down the steps for recognizing faces. You just do it. But if the saying that a computer can only do what it's programmed to do were true, then we wouldn't be able to get a computer to recognize faces. And yet we have. We trained neural nets to do that, and they learned. We don't know how they do it either, but they work anyway. So that's my definition of artificial intelligence. When a computer does something that a person could do, given enough time, but cannot reasonably write down the steps for doing it. And I have a definition of intelligence too, at least until I find something I like better. That is that it's the rate at which new knowledge is created. In the words of Lex Luthor, some people can read the ingredients on a chewing gum wrapper and unlock the secrets of the universe. Obviously thinking of himself there. Think about someone smart, like Sherlock Holmes or my favorite TV detective, Adrian Monk. Someone comes in to see him and the observable data about the visitor is the same as what you and I can see, but he puts these pieces together and deduces that the visitor is a Freemason who has done a lot of manual labor, visited China, and written a lot lately. And that's all useful knowledge that didn't exist before, and Holmes, or Monk, created it. So my working idea of intelligence is that it's the rate at which something does that. What do you think? Anyway, back to part two of the interview with Christoph Kovacs. There was something last year called the AI Animal Olympics, where people entered different AIs and they were graded according to what animals' level of intelligence they seemed to approximate, which got a lot of interesting attention to see whether someone's AI was the equivalent of a, a rat or a a mole or, or, or something. Uh, it was quite a, an interesting exercise in that respect. You mentioned the Turing test, just for anyone that's not familiar with that. That was proposed by Alan Turing back after the, the Second World War, sometime around the early 1950s, as a way of how should we determine whether a computer is thinking like a human? And he was using the word thinking, which is maybe halfway between intelligence and consciousness. And he proposed this empirical definition that we should have a test where you get to talk to a computer that on the other side of the communication link is either an AI or a human. And in a number of tests, if you can't tell that the AI isn't a human, then we should say that it's thinking like one. It's actually problematic in that it is only telling you whether the AI is pretending to think like a human, because if it were conscious in the sense that we would want anyone that we were talking with to be, then it would know that it wasn't, and, and therefore it would be lying uh, in, in pretending to have that 
shared background with us. But that's a, that's a topic for another discussion. Let's ask a, a completely different question for a moment. We, we think of intelligence as being something innate, like you can learn facts, you can build up your muscles, but we, we tend to think of intelligence as being a fixed factor, like this is how tall you are, this is your eye color. And is that true? Can we, can we change it? Notwithstanding drugs that can temporarily change it, like nootropics, uh, narcotics. If someone said, Christoph, I want to score 10 points higher this time next year. What do I do? <laughs> wow. Okay. Um, it's whether, whether intelligence is, is innate is, is, again, one of the most heated controversies in, in the field. I wouldn't say that it is general agreement that it is innate. Um, there, is, uh, there is general agreement that it, that it is to a large part heritable. Um, and this is a complex thing. They are not the same, and I will get to that just just in a second. Um, uh, but first, what you have to realize is that uh, is that IQ is a relative score. So what it, it's it's uh, originally IQ testing used the concept of mental age. So a guy who who invented IQ test score it is a French guy called Alfred Binet, a French psychologist. He, he capitalized on the finding that children, by and large, uh, become more intelligent as they grow up. So older children are more intelligent than the younger children. And so he, he categorized, he created a lot of uh, uh, problems uh, to solve and categorized them according to the age at which half of children could solve them. And so, uh, which means pretty much the, the average children of the given age. So a, 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 an item that can on average be solved by nine-year-olds was ordered as, a, as an item that requires a nine-year-old's mental age to solve, a six-year-old, a six-year-old, and so on. And this is what the test was built on. Um, that already is a relativistic score because it, it depends very strongly on a norm population on which the item is normed. So then when it's categorized that it's typically eight-year-olds that solve uh, this item. But this only works for children. Um, when, when, our, when, as soon as, as this, this, this law is not true anymore, that as our chronological, chronological age increases, so does our mental capabilities, which is true at 10, not necessarily true at 85, then it doesn't, or uh, not even sadly enough at 40. Um, it, it, it means that, that it doesn't work anymore. So the concept of devi so what's called deviation IQ was born. And that's what we use for IQ measurement, uh, even for children now. Now there is a trick because IQ stands for intelligence quotient and you get a quotient when you divide something with something. Um, and originally it's good for mental age as calculated, as I said, as the age at which the child performs divided by the child's chronological age. So a six year old who performs at the level of an average seven year, seven year old is uh, is ahead, uh, and uh, someone uh, the same six-year-old child who performs the level of five-year-old is behind, and that can be expressed in this ratio called uh, ratio of, of, of mental age and chronological age called the IQ. And the concept of IQ became very popular when they realized it doesn't work, and and if you want to test for adults, you have to come up with a new method because mental age doesn't improve anymore with chronological age. And so um, a researcher uh, called Wexler, also the father of the Wexler test, 
created this concept of the deviation IQ, which is what all it does, it, co it compares one to one's uh, peer group, to, to one's age group. So they administer uh, items to a large number of people, which is called a norming population. And then your row score, your score in the test, you call your row score, is compared to the row score distribution of this norming population. And if, let's say, you outperform, if, if you perform exactly as the average of your age group, your IQ will be 100. And then this deviation IQ follows the particularities of what's called the normal or Gaussian distribution. And so if you outperform, let's say, 84% of your age group, you will have an IQ of 115. Uh, if you outperform 98%, you will have an IQ above 130, uh, and so on. But this is a trick because it's not a quotient anymore. The name IQ was kept because by then it became well-known and popular. But in, in, in fact, it's not a quotient, it's just, it's just a comparison to a, norm, to a norm group. And since uh, the normal distribution has very nice mathematical properties, this, this statistic, the percentage of people you outperform, called the percentile, is always convertible. Now, again, I'm not trying to avoid the question, but what I'm trying to say, it's not like body height in this matter, because body height is an absolute score. Uh, if you want to uh, go into details of the maths, the difference is whether you have an absolute zero or not. There's an absolute zero for the centimeter scale. There's no absolute zero for the IQ scale because it simply compares to a normal population mean. So if you want, uh, it's very, very different to say I want to grow 10 centimeters and I want to grow 10 IQ points. Uh, if, if you... Um, a nice analogy to express this is because you brought up height uh, is, is uh, I don't know if, if you have it in Canada, in Hungary. Uh, we used to have it when, when it's uh, physical education class or gymnastics or whatever it's called in schools, you know, the physical education uh, is, is this the right word? I'm not a native speaker. Uh, physical education. Okay. So uh, what teachers often do, or at least did a few decades ago, is they line up uh, all the kids in, in terms of order of, of how exactly now that that's it. Uh, now in that respect, if you think about that, if you think about such a line as, as uh, in Hungary has a very nice expression, which unfortunately I'm not aware in English. So this line at physical education plus, um, uh, height is the equivalent of, of one's cognitive abilities, the, how well one performs on their own sort of, uh, and that can be sort of compared to one's previous uh, performance. But IQ is not like that. IQ is like the line. So basically, uh, going up 10 IQ points means that being, instead of being better than, let's say, 55% um, of people, you're not better than 70% of people. And then it's a relativistic thing. So uh, there's, there's, there's a finding called the Flynn effect that IQ scores have been uh, rising since almost the birth of, of, of IQ testing. And the tests are often re-standardized, uh, meaning that they are given to new and new norm populations new norm populations uh, 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 every now and then. And the means get higher and higher, which means that if you 
if you get a, a performance level, you get a row score that translates to 100 IQ, your score on a, uh, on a test uh, norm that was obtained 30 years ago would be, let's say, 115. In which case, you say that in 30 years, the IQ increase of the population was 15 points. Or the other way around, somebody uh, 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 who scored 30 years ago would score on today's norm, then uh, if there's a 15 IQ point field effect, then they would score uh, 85, the average person. So what was the average person 30 years ago? So you have to keep in mind, this is, this is a relativistic thing. And when it's renormed, we always get the mean to 100. But the entire scale to which we compare can move um, up and down. Right. Uh, and, and I admit at this point, I'm trying to some extent to avoid the question <laughs> because I can't give you a recipe how to increase your IQ by, uh, by 10 points. There's a very recent meta-analysis actually that found that, that every extra year of schooling matters one to four IQ points depending on the schooling and the ability. But then again, it depends on, on the population. If if uh, like it's a silly silly idea, but if if uh, like everybody else had to stop education and you're the only one still in class, then your IQ will skyrocket because because it's relative score. Uh, but it's not necessarily different from the one you would achieve normally if all the other kids attended school as well. But since it's a comparative score, you will just leave them behind. Uh, and that's, sorry, that's just, uh, it's, a lot, it's just two questions. So the innate uh, uh, thing, it's also important, is the same exact logic. Uh, when we're talking about heritability, we're talking about individual differences. Again, only individual differences. Just like IQ is a relative thing, so is this. Um, heritability, right. sorry, just, just one more sentence. Heritability actually gives you the ratio of the total variance that can be attributed to genetic differences. And that's like half, 50%. So half of the variance is genetic. It doesn't mean that one, any single person's IQ score is 50% result of one's genes. Because you wouldn't, again, come to this hate analogy, and then I stop here. Uh, you wouldn't say that if someone is... Uh, uh, six feet tall and height is five sixth person heritable, then the person owes five feet to their genes and one feet to the one foot to the environment because that would be silly. What it means is that in a population, the differences of height can be uh, to a large extent attributed to the genetic differences, and that is the same with IQ. Right. And so you're talking about the way in which we measure IQ is that the number is a measure of your intelligence relative to the rest of the population. And if that shifts, then so will the, the basis for the number. One thing I want to make sure that people listening to this understand is that there are actually different scales of IQ and they're all based on a normal curve, but on one of them, that one standard deviation from the mean might be 15 points on another, it might be 24. So when someone tells you what their IQ is, uh, which in Mensa is a, a no-no, but um, <laughs> if someone tells you their IQ or you learn the IQ of someone, it's meaningless unless you know which scale it's, it's measured on, correct? Uh, yes, I couldn't agree more. I, I, that's why I always prefer percentiles because that's the way to convert. Um, because it's, 
both scales, the 24, uh, 24 scale and the 15 scale, uh, they are both based on the normal distribution and the same method the properties of the normal distribution. And so in one case, as you said, the standard deviation is translated to 15 IQ points, in other case to 24, but it's always one standard deviation. And as it happens, you can always calculate the percentage of pe people who outperform on a given standard deviation. So if you are one standard deviation above the mean, you outperform 84% of people. Regardless of whether you use a scale uh, that's 15 and your IQ will be 115, or you use a case scale that's 24, it's 124, still, in both instances, the, 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 the fact of the matter is that you can outperform 84% of people. Right. And the same with, 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 with two deviations, which is, of course, 130 and 148, which is a large difference, but both are at the 98th um, percentile. I also have to say, so, so I think percentile is always more informative, and there's so much hype about IQ, but exactly because of these things, and people are not usually aware of what you just said, that there are different scales and so on, there are at times silly comparisons, and I always encourage people to use the percentile because that's that's the way of conversion. But just I, I also have to add that that the fifteen point scale is almost exclusively accepted these days. So the twenty four point scale was used for for a while, uh, and it was uh, created by someone called Catal that I already mentioned. He's one of the C's in CHC. Um, but uh, but today, almost exclusively, the fifteen IQ point scale is uh, accepted. But you cannot, right. you know, bump into people who have IQ scores on the twenty-four percent scale, and their IQ sound a whole lot better. But in fact, it's the same person time. So, if we restrict the domain of this comparison to one individual at a time, and think of that as being analogous to someone takes the bar exam or a driving test and they fail uh, and they want to pass the next time. So they have a good idea of how to do that, training, more book reading. And so in the position of someone who wants to improve their score on an intelligence test relative to what it was last time, get more answers right. I think the general population has the, the sense that this is futile, but now that we're starting to understand about neuroplasticity in particular, at, and that the brain is uh, a lot more pliable than we had assumed, that there's ideas that that's not so futile. And do you have any thoughts about that? Well, there is no 100% money-back guarantee kind of method, uh, for sure. Um, Again, we, we know a few things that are that are good for IQ, or to be more precise, we know a few things that are very bad if you don't have them. So, like uh, after so, so many instances, there are these kind of asymptotes or thresholds um, in, in terms of the environment. So, uh, people often claim high heritability, meaning that the environment doesn't matter very much in terms of individual in, in, in determining individual differences. But it's only true so far as the environment is not awfully bad. So like schools, school quality, a lot of, there's a lot of data that school quality doesn't matter as much as people usually um, presume. But of course, I mean, you put, you try to put your children in good schools, not just because of their cognitive abilities. So arguably there are other reasons, but in terms of cognitive ability, what the data show is that uh, school quality doesn't matter 
uh, as much as, as people presume in terms of improving cognitive ability. But schooling itself does matter, uh, of course. So if you, if you don't give your, if your child doesn't attend school, then that's very detrimental. Uh, same with nutrition, uh, which is a more obvious example. I mean, uh, taking in 5,000 calories uh, a day won't improve your IQ for sure. But taking in 500 every day as you grow up instead of like 2,000 will be very bad for your IQ and for your brain development and so on. So very often there are these, there are these uh, thresholds or asymptotes where the environment matters if it's bad. But, uh, but if it's good enough, then it will not influence individual differences anymore. Hmm. And I again have to emphasize we're talking about individual differences. It doesn't mean that, that, that it's not good for your skills. It means that since everybody else gets the same treatment, you will not get a relative advantage, which is all IQ is about. But it doesn't mean it's not important for the development of your own cognitive skills compared to just yourself and how you were like 10 years ago. Exactly. And there's a popular idea that's been going around for a while that says that everyone is in some unspecified ways the average of the five people they're closest to. So maybe we can get smarter by hanging around smarter people. I know that begs all kinds of mathematical questions from your point of view, but from an individual self-improvement point of view, maybe it's a, an idea. And, and certainly that was the, the, the point of Mensa, right? For smart people to be able to hang around other smart people. Can you tell us what your role as supervisory psychologist of Mensa entails? Uh, yes. Uh, first, well, the, originally the, Mensa, the, the purpose of Menza was not just to for smart people to hang around. They had very the founders of Menza uh, after the Second World War had very very ambitious goals. So they hoped to create an organization that collect that collects the smartest people in the world. And so governments from then on will rely on their advice and will consult with them, and that will lead to world peace because, of course. Uh, governments had consulted with smart people all the way, they would have avoided all those stupid mistakes that went to, went to these catastrophic events. Yes, well, that points up one of the ways in which very smart people can also be uh, rather ignorant of, of certain things about people. But anyway, keep yes. going. Yes, yes, yes. So Menza, Menza now, of course, doesn't uh, contact governments for, uh, for unsolicited, to give unsolicited advice. So the main purpose indeed is to provide uh, what's, what's in the Menza constitution, an intellectually stimulating environment for the members. But, but Menza also has, besides this sort of social goal, it also has two other stated goals. One is to support intelligence research and another is to foster human intelligence. Um, and so there, there is a Menza Foundation, for instance, that gives grants uh, for both researchers and, and students and so on. Uh, as, as for uh, uh, supervised psychologists, now Menza does IQ testing, of course, for admission. And that requires psychologists. So, so psych, IQ testing is psychological testing, and for legal and other reasons, uh, it's it's uh, it's very strongly regulated in most countries. So, Menza as an organization cannot, in most countries, just go around and give IQ tests to people. They need a psychologist to do that, and what the psychologist pretty much supervises this. 
uh, this testing and takes respons its professional responsibility. So that's the role of the supervisory psychologist. Uh, and there's a supervisor psychologist for every Benza chapter. Uh, and there's an international supervisor psychologist that sort of supervises the entire thing, but not directly. It's quite decentralized. So uh, individual uh, uh, supervisor psychologists in every nation or every chapter have a lot of rights, a lot of autonomy uh, to decide on, on what test they will use and so on. Um, but if they want to change the test, that has to be approved by the international supervisor psychologist. Or if, uh, if uh, like, let's say a national psychologist uh, resigns and the given board appoints a new one, then the ISP, the international supervisor psychologist, has to approve and so on. So that's the main activity of the supervisor psychologist to supervise the testing activity. I see. Do you attend many Mensa events yourself? Uh, not these days, unfortunately, to be honest, um, I'm, I have small kids and all that. So no, 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 not, 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 not very often these days. Uh, and of course, during the lockdown, there were no events uh, at all. Uh, there are one of two online events, but I do attend uh, some. Uh, there are uh, great invited talks uh, by, by people. I think that's what I attend most. Uh, less of the partying kind of, of events these days. If someone's listening to this who would qualify for membership, uh, how should they decide, in your opinion, whether that might be a good thing to try out? Well, they should, they should look for the national Mensa chapter where they live. Um, if, if there is a Mensa, there is a Mensa organization in the country they live, uh, and that's like nearly 50 countries now. So, so uh, in most countries, there will be either a full Mensa or an emerging Mensa, which I won't bore you with it is, but some kind of Mensa organization that exists and, uh, and does testing. Uh, then they should just search for that. They should just search for Mensa in, just Google Mensa in the local kind of. Uh, and see whether there's a men's organization and if it, there is it will organize testing and they can take an admission test if there is no uh, local but only if there is no local chapter one can become a direct international member which is much less fun to be honest because there are no programs or events to attend you just get a certificate that you remember um, but then you can then you can send what's called a prior evidence. So if you if you happen to have an IQ test result that's obtained, that is an accepted test. Uh, so not just like and it's supervised test. So it's not one of those unsupervised IQ tests on the internet where you pay five dollars and you get an IQ of two hundred and fifty or something like that. So it's not one of those nonsense tests, but the genuine valid. Uh, uh, IQ test that was supervised and you get an official result or report of that, you can submit that as prior evidence and become a direct international member, in which case the prior evidence is evaluated by the international supervisor psychologist because there is no national chapter. So it's also one of the things I do. I see. Uh, you mentioned that your children are keeping you busy at the moment. Mine are at the moment 10 and 6 and watching them grow up has been an exercise in trying to figure out how intelligence develops from observing it happening there and being largely frustrated in that this miracle happens that they're unable to articulate. So I, I see, for instance, my 10-year-old daughter's progress in chess over the last six months has been staggering. And yet to her, she's just operating intuitively. And I can't find out how she got that much better at it. But now she's 
beating me without my having to spot her five pieces anymore. And it's remarkable that this process is going on. Have you had experiences like that where you look at your children and as, as a, a father and see this development of this amazing capability? Yes, I, I agree. It's, it's remarkable and it's miraculous. I mean, I, I cannot watch it, obviously, as, as, as a kind of researcher, just like a, a father, but it, it, is, it is remarkable. My daughter is also 10. Unfortunately, she doesn't like jazz. My son, who is seven, he loves though, and he's just, uh, he's becoming good, only that, I mean, his attention span is not long enough. Um, but yeah, he, he's also, I, I have a very similar experience. It, he has developed a lot in the past few months, uh, and very intuitively, like almost like a skill instead of, uh, instead of explicit knowledge. This has been great. I don't want to take up any more of your time. We have a, a, a limit here, but maybe we could talk some more in the future. Just uh, give me an idea briefly of what you're currently researching or what developments in your field are happening right now that uh, excite you, how this study of intelligence is, is evolving. Um, okay, uh, first of all, I, I'm involved in, in many of the uh, debates that I, I try to uh, depict as, ob as objective as I can. But uh, frankly, my own work uh, is on, on modeling uh, and related to the G factor. And I'm one of those people who, who argue that uh, G is more like a common consequence rather than a common cause and focus should be put on specific abilities. So it's, it's a very useful and handy statistical summary, both G and IQ. Uh, but if you want to actually get to know someone's cognitive, cognitive abilities, then you should focus on their uh, profile of individual strengths and weaknesses because there are people, even in Menza actually, interestingly, there are people who have very high verbal, and and uh, not necessarily uh, that good in spatial things, uh, whereas the others who are really really good at everything spatial, like spatial puzzles. But but uh, if you offer them a game of Scrabble, they go for the gun. Um, so yeah, there are very specific profiles um, of, of strengths and weaknesses. Um, so that that debate is is uh, it has been. It's got us engaged for a century. It will get us engaged for some more. But there are new results, but I don't mind. It's, I can't answer that. It's very short, so I won't go into detail. That's one thing. And the other exciting uh, development, for instance, is, is genome-wide association studies, which is GVAS, as they call it. They scan the entire gen genome and look for pieces uh, where, where variation is correlated with variation in the phenotype, in this particular instance, intelligence. Um, and that's, that, of course, is a correlation. Uh, so we are a few steps from actually understanding the causal mechanisms, but still it's really exciting that we can scan the genome and look for places where variation correlates with, with ability. That could open up a whole can of worms about eugenics, perhaps? Yeah, I, I hope not. <laughs> Because of like the, all the awful things uh, done under under eugenics, um, I, I, it doesn't necessarily mean we can influence that. I was talking about actually looking at these uh, these these correlations. Um, yeah, eugenics is uh, luckily it's not something that 
exists as it existed in the 1920s. But of course, the history of IQ testing is strong. I mean, the early history of IQ testing, right. especially in the US, actually, is uh, strongly uh, connected to the eugenics. Eugenics, hopefully not anymore. Yes, and unfortunately. Yes, very unfortunately. But it's very different. I mean, originally, Binet created this test as an individual test to provide individualized help to children who struggle at school. Uh, and in the U.S., it, it, it got a really different take. Uh, so it, it became an, an instrument of mass testing uh, that focused more like on limitations than on. So like actually trying to, to evaluate the limits uh, of, of, of one in terms of comfortability and then to find the right, sort of the right path uh, for the person. And then it, it, it was very problematic in a large uh, in, in a number of ways, which I don't want to go into uh, right. of time, but yeah, so so hopefully these these things are uh, um, part of the past, really. really. Sorry, just one more thing. Nature. Well, one of the, this is interestingly because you just mentioned this. Uh, one of uh, one of uh, uh, these these really good genomic studies on intelligence appeared in the journal Nature, which is of course one of the highest prestigious uh, science, journals. Uh, science and nature are the two most most uh, highly uh, cited uh, um, popular around that's for, for science and ones that are know that are read outside of of, of academia as well. And when this paper was published, uh, the editors of Nature uh, felt compelled to to put an editorial in there where they argue that yes, somebody hears intelligence plus genomics, it already rings the bell. Oh, isn't this eugenics and uh, and they are, I don't remember the exact title, but it was something like intelligence science should not be held back by its best or something like that. Uh, if you look at up, it, 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 it appeared in nature. So yeah, I, I agree with that wholeheartedly. Yes. I, I hope that is the case. But where it, it's kind of colliding though with us again today in that uh, people in certain parts of the world undergoing in vitro fertilization have available a, a technique called PGD, uh, pre-implantation genetic diagnosis, and they can, it's, it's still illegal, I think, everywhere to alter the, the genome in a, a human fetus, yes. but the, uh, they, they can select for certain genes. And uh, while I believe that fertility clinics decline to provide genetic information to enable selection based upon intelligence, that's possible. Since this is illegal, it hasn't been tried. I'm not, so I would, I would have to see the first success story there where genetic engineering results in, well, in extremely smart humans. Uh, it, it, is, it is something that could happen. Theory, I'm yes. not saying it's a good thing, um, but it is something that some people want to do and is, is an issue that, Probably will not go away anytime soon. I have to remind you, IQ is a relative score. Yes. So you only get the advantage in terms of IQ, not in ability, but in IQ, if you're the only one using these techniques. If every child undergoes the same genetic selection, sort of, uh, to, to boost, uh, boost uh, cognitive abilities, then the mean level of intelligence uh, will 
increase for all of humanity. This is a silly thought experiment that's to try to put home. Uh, but the IQ won't change because right. then uh, everybody will outperform previous generations, but not the normal group. Exactly. The mathematical consequences are minor, but the moral ones are, are, yes. are thorny. Yes. Um, any final thoughts you would like to leave our audience with regarding intelligence or Mensa or your work? Well, I think it's it's uh, that we just briefly tapped on this this quantitative measurement for machines. That's a very exciting uh, field, and I expect developments there. There are very, very interesting uh, initiatives there, um, and, and and a number of fascinating books and papers came out that try to overcome this this problem and somehow try to get something similar to IQ for machines. So I think that's that's a fascinating uh, area of research. IQ for machines, that's an immensely interesting, fascinating, provocative concept. And what a great place to leave everyone hanging here at this point and conclude this interview. Thank you very much, Christoph Kovacs. Take care. And hopefully we'll talk again later. I would love to. And thank you again for having me. That concludes the interview. I'm going to put in another plug for my upcoming Continuing Studies course that covers the same theme as this podcast. What is AI? Why will it affect you? And how can you and your business survive and thrive through the AI revolution? And this year, for the first time, that course will be online, for fairly obvious reasons. So I had the time changed to morning in my time zone, Pacific time, so that it runs at a time where everyone from Hawaii to Moscow can participate at a reasonable hour. Sorry all you folk in India, China, Australia, Japan. We'll work something out for you next time. This is 10 hours of instruction. It'll take place over five classes, one per week, starting September 9th. There's a registration link in the show notes and the transcript. Or you can go to continuingstudies.uvic.ca and search on artificial intelligence. It's the first hit. You'll know you're in the right place when you see University of Victoria at the top. Since it's online, I'm hoping they won't cap the sign-ups at the limit they have on the page. I get paid the same no matter how many people are in the course. The reason I want lots of people in there is to get more of my message out there, and because the more people the more fun and impactful the classes. What are we going to talk about? A huge variety of things, from the history of AI to the present issues to the speculative future, from the people who are influential in the field to the impact of AI on jobs, media, and society. We'll spend a great deal of time explaining AI at a practical level that doesn't require computer experience so you get a good idea of just what it can and cannot do now and in the future. Obviously, that's a really broad syllabus, just like this podcast. We're not going to teach how to program AI. There's no code or math. It's all about, well, AI and you. Everything I'm producing is doing that job. This class, my videos, my TEDx talks, my book, and this podcast. Next up will be the rap album. My vision, just so you know where I want to take this, is to produce not just a course, but an entire department, giving multiple programs of multiple courses for credit at university and graduate levels, and also with high school and corporate training versions. The idea is not world domination, well, not just world domination, 
but to create part of what we need to help people understand how to deal with and leverage disruption. As long as we're talking about education, this episode's AI headline is that people have been putting GPT-3 to work writing creative fiction, one of which was composing letters to Indiana Jones, denying him tenure at his university. The link is in the show transcript. Here's an excerpt, and I remind you that this is part of a lengthy and quite coherent letter entirely written by GPT-3 in response simply given the following prompt. Quote, Back from yet another globetrotting adventure, Indiana Jones checks his mail and discovers that his bid for tenure has been denied. End quote. Here's part of what GPT-3 said. Quote, your lack of diplomacy, your flagrant disregard for the feelings of others, your consistent need to inject yourself into scenarios which are clearly outside the scope of your scholarly expertise, and, frankly, the fact that you often take the side of the oppressor, leads us to the conclusion that you have used your tenure here to gain a personal advantage and have failed to adhere to the ideals of this institution. End quote. Okay, maybe it's too early to start talking about computers having a sense of humor. And if you thought intelligence was hard to define, wait till we try to pin that one down. But maybe we should start tracking it. Next episode's guest will be Paolo Perjanian. He is the founder of Embodied Incorporated, which makes robots to assist children who are challenged in some aspect of their social development. You will be amazed at what it can do. That's in next week's episode of AI and You. Until then, remember, no matter how much computers learn how to do, it's how we come together as humans that matters. That's all for this episode of AI and You. Please leave a rating and comment and share with your friends. Get the book Crisis of Control and see more videos and articles at AIandYou.net. That's A-I-A-N-D-Y-O-U dot net, where you can also send us your questions. Thank you for listening. <laughs>